want to add a couple of things. First, I want to ask you, you said you mentioned that Tom Friedman, if, if I remember correctly, said that he would be willing to do it anonymously. No. Uh, no, not, I, did, I, I, I said some, a, few, a small number, okay. less than 10% of the people that Dan, Dan Gardner surveyed were willing to do it anonymously. Okay. I'm not going to comment on who they were. So I think the oh, oh, well, Tom was not among them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think the character, the character to me from just like a user perspective is the desire to be right and the desire to announce that I'm right. That's, that's enough of a character in this, in this game. I would involve in this game to prove that I'm right. And there is social virality aspect of it. If I'm 100%, assuming in a real world, if I am, I'm 100% right, I like to show up on every single platform to tell people that I'm 100% right about things. Supers the like to do that. They're proud. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, proud. the problem comes in, which is the risk. Um, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm actually 60% wrong? What if I'm 80% wrong? So maybe there is um, a, a pseudo-anonymous uh, model whereby you only disclose that, the, uh, in my profile, you only disclose the things that I'm right about. And you don't disclose my accuracy level. Uh, but then internally, um, you give better macro data about, so for example, would, um, um, would Syria civil war ends and by the end of the year? You are collecting all the data from all the people. And based on the historical performance, you know your confidence level is 75% yes. Um, but then you're not going to expose anyone who did the wrong forecasting. Uh, and everyone who did the right forecasting would eventually have that on their profile, that they were right about the Syria. Mm -hmm. So on one hand, you collected the macro data, and you have the right forecast for everybody. And you don't really care about who, mm -hmm. you know, shaming those who got it wrong. And you gave good credit for the people who did the right forecasting. Yeah. Um, reminds me of the old um, B.F. Skinner uh, Boxes. It's only reward. <laughs> this is no, yeah. no punishment there. <laughs> well, there is kind of a punishment internal internally in the system because their weight of next time forecast is going to be much, yeah. much less than the overall forecasting, which is really what you are after, right? You're not after individual uh, results. You're not after telling someone you're seventy. Right. It doesn't matter. You were after would this happen? Seventy-five percent. I think the second generation tournaments are right. Right. It's, it's, it's a, the, the focus is on improving the quality of public debate. Uh, it, the incentivizing people who, who, to become super forecasters may be an important part of improving the probability estimate stream, but it's a secondary goal to the societal yeah. goal. So, so why wouldn't Thomas Friedman does that? You are not going to expose all the mistakes that he's doing, but then you are going to give him some good credit for the stuff he got right. And everybody in the system knows probably Tom Friedman have missed 50%, but at least they know the 50% that he was right about. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, what I would like in the second generation tournament is public access to it, just as yeah. a public person, and the ability to um, record my own prediction, my own forecast, in a way that uh, I can revisit it when I turn out to have been wrong. And the way turning out to have been wrong is the most important learning part of this whole process. And being comfortable acknowledging that and then noticing and doing the kind of analysis that these people who become super forecasters go through, why was I wrong? Oh, I had an ideological commitment. I didn't even yeah. realize it, whatever it may be. And or maybe I share my rightness and my wrongness with a certain group of people whose opinions I uh, really would like to pool. 
uh, and be part of and show off to or be proudly uh, humble in front of, look how long I was on this ivy that because so, so what do you think? Uh, but I'd like a place to, to sort of without big consequence, try my abilities. I, I was a professional futurist for 25 years. We did scenarios and all this stuff. I'll bet I'm pretty good, or I bet I'm pretty bad. Either one would be interesting, and I want to do that in a way where I'm forced to be honest with myself. That's a great approach as well. You, in that training part of your of your regime, that's private, right? I mean, other people don't see the results of that beginning work that they do. Is that correct? But do, does everyone see everyone's scores? Right. No, the only it's it's your model. The only scores that are seen are the top ten percent, and then everybody else can remain anonymous. And in the and in the cognitive bias training that they go through. That's, that's just the person's happening. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm curious about your emphasis on tournaments. <laughs> and why, I mean, it, it would seem from what you've said that an organization uh, could set up the forecasting, you know, whatever the forecasting team selected in some way from among their employees and trained in some way internally and set them forecasting problems. And so, and it, so somehow it seems to me that the emphasis on tournaments is, is restricted, that there is more to what you're proposing than tournaments. You know, in principle, you're, you're talking about finding people who think reasonably well to begin with, training them to, to think better, putting them in teams, and and setting them, putting them to work. Right. Uh, so what am I missing? Why are you emphasizing tournaments so much? Well, um, I, I, I think there are different levels of analysis here. And um, the, 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 there is a private sector spin-off from the Good Judgment Project, which is engaged with organizations in creating tournaments inside organizations and doing exactly all those things that you described and that we talked about yesterday is critical for you know, um, cultivating, spotting and cultivating skill. Uh, so that, that can all happen within any, any, within any private or sector public organization. The focus here is on a societal level um, and I can't think of a better way of um, crystallizing what I see as the, the entrenchment, the, the, the ossification of status and, and closed-mindedness that, that is, is um, uh, making, making policy debate, making it so hard to learn from policy debates, um, making it so hard for policy debates to be meaningfully cumulative rather than kabuki, rhetorical kabuki dances that, um, Can you think of any alternatives, Danny? Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the issue here is, is with the client. This is true in, in the context of policy, whether the decision makers are ready for this, or what would be the social impact of having a subgroup of people improving their forecasting. It would have to be, you know, if you're viewing this as a, as a campaign, then I think television program, a large prize, and so on, would be, would 
would be extremely useful. But ultimately, I'm not sure that it's about that you can improve society thinking or thinking about social problems by having essentially dispassionate people think dispassionately about problems when you know there are there are politically motivated hedgehogs who, who shout a lot louder. Well, here's the minimal the minimalist goal is to make it marginally more embarrassing to be incorrigibly close-minded. Just marginally. Uh, the, bit, the more ambitious goal is to make it substantially more embarrassing. Uh, and I think you know, that, that, that's, that, that requires, it requires uh, talent and it requires resources of the sort that academics like myself don't possess. <laughs> so um, I don't know how to create a TV show. I don't think I don't know how to do. Gotcha. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I had a question about the debate about basically prediction versus uh, predicting policy, the discussion that you and Bob had earlier. Um, so there's certain policy decisions that are fairly, I think, unique where they hinge a lot on a specific prediction. For example, the WMD example that you gave, you might argue that that was a sideshow and that was a story, but um, there was a long public debate about whether there's WMD, and that could have been a pivotal. Uh, decision that would have changed the decision to go to Iraq. Most decisions, I think, when it comes to policy aren't that way. They're like, do you go into Syria or not? And you have a lot of factors you have to consider. Nevertheless, if you are um, in charge or if you're advising um, uh, uh, our intelligence agencies on their hiring protocol, would you advise them to um, uh, uh, give a boost to people that do well in your tournaments versus those that don't when it comes to making the kind of decision like, should we go to Syria? I, I would, and, and in fact, it, it's already happened to some degree. As, as, as Barb knows from one of our super forecaster conferences, there was a, a, a person from, from the intelligence community, moderately senior, who encouraged the super forecasters to apply for jobs there. I don't know how many actually did since the vast majority are already pretty gainfully employed, but. Um, uh, no, I, th I think it's a good idea, and I, and I, and I don't think it, 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 it occurs to people inside the IC to have people like super forecasters in many of the domains where super forecasters are generating good probability estimates. So I, I, I think that, that I think just at a purely personnel selection level, that would that would be a good idea. The 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 really hard part of what you the hard issue that you raised, I think, has to do with. Um, uh, yes, WMD in Iraq was a situation where there was one pivotal point of disagreement, and, and, and I think it was a real disagreement, uh, although there certainly was, you could argue other things are going on. Um, the, there are other, other policy debates are more multidimensional. Uh, which policy alternatives are more or less attractive hinges on uh, somewhat intricate clusters of questions uh, that would need to be generated. And, and, um, but I, I think the, 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 the debates we saw over Obamacare, uh, the debates we see over um, uh, quantitative easing, uh, a lot of the debates we see, um, the, you can imagine multiple indicators that could tip the scales of plausibility toward one side or the other of, 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 of the debate. But that's the hard part. That was the thing I dwelled on a bit yesterday. And, and the reason I dwelled on it is, is I see it as so crucial to making this work. Uh, uh, mass engagement is, is, is crucial, uh, but so is the quality of the questions. And generating high quality questions is, um, is something we need to put a lot of energy into. You know. would, would 
hiring super forecasters, uh, I, I, one would think that it might bias their judgments once they are within the. Right now, they're somehow independent when they make their forecasts, but yeah. if they are within the organization, they might have. Oh, sure. Lots of things could happen to them. Uh, very few of them, I think, will ever join what the intelligence community. But, <laughs> but do you think it's, it would actually introduce um, uh, less accuracy to their forecasts? I'm not sure. Uh, once, once you enter an organization, you're not playing a pure accuracy game. You're playing a lot of other games. You've got to get along with the boss. You've got to get along with other people. There are all sorts of things you have to do to get, to get, to, to get along. And um, it, I think those inevitably would degrade accuracy to some degree, yes. Oh. And also, Phil, so um, people could opt out. They could just answer whatever questions they wanted, right? And Thomas Friedman has to answer every question. Does he? Isn't that a major no. difference? I mean, in a sense, but he's obligated every week to do... Well, it's a question. <laughs> yeah, to answer my right, question. But it's his question already. Yeah, that's true. So if they could answer their own questions, it would be like his job. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be nice to have an accu you know, an accuracy guru in the company who everybody just trusts because the whole focus of that person is not to take sides, just completely engage in the single goal. Could you think of examples? Is, is this, does this happen anywhere? You know? Um, it's hard to. I mean, you hear about stories of uh, there was a guy in uh, American Airlines who knew how to fix everything at the last possible minute when everybody else had given up and he was 80 or something like that. And people were very upset when he was taken out of the workplace for three or four days to create this belief network. When this thing rattles and that thing's, you know, breaks, what's the probability that this and such is wrong? And apparently it was helping, um, not American, United Airlines for many years. It was this incredibly valuable accuracy belief network. And, and that was his claim to fame. Um, they want. They wanted to create a model of him, right? They wanted a, a model of him for when he was built. Yeah. And, and they, they they did, didn't they? Yeah. yeah. Question I have is um, difference between doing a forecasting exercise and something one cares deeply about, and something one doesn't care that much about, but you know is interested enough to do research. And, and which one do you do better on? <laughs> does it, does do it help to care deeply? On, and presumably the, the most educational is, in a sense, both. Uh, and sort of comparing your score on ones you don't care about and are really sort of basically objective, and ones you care deeply about and are basically subjective. And the question is, can you overcome that subjectivity, emotional stance, and all of it, using these techniques and thereby become uh, an honest witness in the sense of the world. 
What have you got? You know, has the work so far indicated anything of how those two play out? Well, we don't really have data that speak very directly to that. There's an experimental literature, though, that looks at these offsetting motives, the desire to be accurate on the one hand and the desire to reach a specific conclusion on the other. Um, obviously, caring a lot about the issue is going to motivate you to immerse yourself in material, but if it motivates you to immerse yourself in the material solely for the purpose of creating a biased case for a particular conclusion, that's not going to be very helpful for accuracy. Um, but um, they're, 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 we, we don't really know this, but there, there probably is some moderate optimal level of stress <laughs> for, for, for promoting performance. The super talk about this. And remember, there was a question about whether Assad would be in power mm -hmm. until date X. And um, a week or two before date X, people were saying, I can't believe this, but I'm, I'm really hoping that Assad will be in power for the next week. <laughs> so I think I'm losing my moral compass, but, you know, that's, mm, that's, that's random. So there, the recognition of this tension is step one, I think. So they're, they're responding to the enforced objectivity, surprising them that they care now, that the ob objective perspective is, is Taking cynics out of the water. It's what I would use as just a public observer if I can record my own um, votes, my own forecasts. I would be watching for the ones I care about versus the ones I don't care about mm -hmm. to see you know, wrong or rightness plays out over time. And if I'm always wrong or often wrong about the ones I care about, that would be an invitation to. Um, adjust mm -hmm. at a pretty deep level. Well, that's, that is the, the, the big challenge. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry? Oh, oh, Dean, I'm sorry. So I was, I was told by somebody who I would never <laughs> contradict, Professor Kahn, that while this might seem a little awkward to me, before I said, if you step way back from everything from where we started, including your very first comments in the morning yesterday about this extraordinary group of people you've collected. They, you repeated it again this afternoon or this morning. They give you 20 or 30, 40 hours a week for 250 you know, prize. I can't help but think of how parallel this, what you're doing is to my collecting the mentors from my first program, which I've been doing for 25 years. And at the risk of sounding like I'm always promoting first, just by comparison, I now have 125,000 of them working with 40 some odd thousand schools, working with these kids. But even your last few minutes of comments, like, well, uh, I want to make it a competition. I want to, because if they just are hired, if they brought into jobs, you pointed out where I was going was maybe the whole reason you've got people that are 20% better than everybody else, in the extreme case I'm thinking, has nothing to do with anything you taught them. You found a way to select people that have so much passion, that are already so good at it, that love it so much. Anybody that loves something and does it as a hobby will do better than somebody who you pay to do it, a quote professional, whether it's painting your house. So maybe you're guilty of some of your own uh, biases or not looking at the raw data probably because you've done that. And then even to then parallel continues when you say, well, I'm not sure if we did turn them into professionals. Maybe I'd lose what I got because now they're under the pressure. It's worse than I didn't just find the ones with passion. <laughs> I now 
it's a job. I got to get it done by five o'clock. I got to do this with the pressure of the boss. The final parallel that I would, let's say, offer up to for you to think about is we have been more than once over the years told that first is going to scale and get into all the schools. We need to start paying people. We need to find. And I am quite convinced. In fact, more than you guys will probably tell me I'm some some bias, but. I listened to the President of the United States and one of his State of the Unions, and I talked to him about it a few weeks ago. You know, he said, I want to have 60,000 new math and science teachers in the schools. And then you look at why aren't they there? Well, somebody that graduates from college with a degree in English or journalism or whatever can go for various kinds of jobs, which a teacher is probably sadly still less paid than some of the others, but nowhere near as much less paid than somebody graduates with a degree in computer science. So, you know, you say, hey, Mr. President, you can't find 60,000 people, period. You won't be able to afford them to put them in a classroom. Thirdly, what makes you think they want to be in a classroom? They chose to do this. So for all sorts of reasons, we are where we are because we're here. There's a reason. You're not going to fix that. <laughs> On the other hand, I already have twice that many people. I have more than double the number of people you claim you need that have true expertise in engineering, and they donate all their time free. They're available, they're here, they're working, and they're like your people. I think every one of them is probably doing more for these kids in these programs than anybody you could find and pay because they're passionate about what they do. They care about the issue. They're trying to train these kids. And then finally, you'd say, yeah, but it's not solving the problem. Building a robot didn't help anybody, but your whole point from the beginning was, I want to make a group of people that are better at forecasting, whatever they go to. I would argue that first is saying we want to make kids better at understanding engineering. In order to do that, we've had to attract world-class people in a way that's fun. We didn't say, do a job that has value today. We work hard to make it fun, like your competition. So not to, again, contradict Professor Cameron, <coughs> but if you did try to turn it into something other than that, you will immediately take on the trappings of its work, its profession, its job. You're going to go into the same gene pool of people that are already doing it professionally. I would go to the other extreme and go even harder on come up with some really fun, exciting prognostications that you make very public. Make it clear that all the, quote, experts are nowhere to be seen. Make sure that all the people with high passion run out to do it and win big prizes because it's fun. It will involve the public, and you will make a first analogy to getting people that care about the issue to excite other people and kids to care about an issue. They will all develop core talent and expertise by practice at those issues, and then they will later self-select to become the professionals that do it better than everybody else. But I think you need to make sure it's fun, make sure that the public can understand what's going on. I think you're, you're a very sophisticated, very academic. Everybody around this table, I think, finds things interesting that most of the public not only doesn't find it interesting, they can't even understand what you're talking about. you got to make this thing much more human at some level, make it more exciting, and get more people involved in it, and let the rest of it take care of itself. You know, there was, there was a throwaway line that you said that I want to fixate on. And, and, we didn't put a lot of emphasis on it, but I think it's just exactly right. Um, we are where we are for a reason, <laughs> um, and we, 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 you know, we, 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 we have the stale status hierarchies we have 
and, and the punditocracy and, and our democracy. <laughs> they exist for, for reasons, and, and, and the major players do not have strong incentives for unilateral defection, which in game theory terms means that we, 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 we may be locked in a, a suboptimal equilibrium trap. Um, it's also true we are, we are where we are for a reason, because you know, Barb and I and, and the other people in the Good Judgment Project are academics. And we don't really know how to do a lot of the things that need to be done to scale this up. We don't have that skill set. We have, we, have we have some advisory capacity and we, we, we could be helpful. But um, actually making that transition, some, someone else needs to take this over um, and do it. Maybe some, some, someone with, with, with the right connections, the right resources, the right skill sets uh, beyond, beyond, beyond the academics. Uh, we are where we are for a reason. I like that. <laughs> I think I think we should just close on that on, on that on that phrase. We are where we are for a reason. <laughs> that is it. Uh, it seems to me this is uh, this group, this subject, is way too sophisticated for the general audience. Like if it were to be presented to a general audience, it would say in a book or. You have to be uh, addressed as such, you know, in the form that the so-called general audience, which I don't believe it is a general audience, uh, would be ready for. Uh, and right now, I don't think there is a general audience that's ready to hear this. Um, I, I think we need to move uh, to scale this up uh, because the activity will be too easy to ignore otherwise. We don't have enough kids doing that, science, engineering, things that will matter to us and to their future. But it's hard work, and they don't understand it, so let's just talk to engineers. I think the whole point about first was, I believe, and maybe I'm not, given the right opportunity, given the right incentives, all kids, particularly women and minorities that never thought they could or should or would be able to decide if they put their passion there, they can. And the goal was to get way more people involved in something good for them and good for the future. But to do it, you're not dumbing it down, you're just making it available in a way that, sadly, the intellects, you know, in the case of the ivory towers of engineers, never did before. And I think that analogy, again, is the third piece that comes to you. If you want the public to not be supporting people that send them into dumb wars or mm -hmm. do policies that are self-destructive in a democracy, you can't just assume the elites will solve the problem, and your whole premise, I think, has been, uh, we listen to the ones that are superficially dumb, that always have an easy answer that has one common element. It's simple, it's easy to understand, but its common element is it's typically wrong. And if you're saying that, if he, what he's saying is, given the right incentives, more people could get better at predicting properly, and maybe the public would care about that and watch more, and it's a self, then I would say, instead of assuming you've got to just talk to the people that already saw it again and that might be interested, you've got to redouble your efforts to make it something that is accessible and fun and appreciated by a much broader group of people. First, by pointing out how important it is. And I don't think that's hard to do. He's saying, boy, if we could predict the future better than life, well, everybody in the world wants the one thing more than everything else. I want to know what's going to happen to myself, to my kids, to the style. I don't think it's a hard premise to say to people, would you like to be able to predict the future better than you can now? <laughs> Who's not going to like that? And then 
I mean, I, I don't think you have to keep this thing at an esoteric academic plane in order to get what you want out of it. You don't have to dumb it down either. You just have to figure out how to relate to a broader group of people. Uh, I think I would say, say. I would agree with most of what you said. I wouldn't use the word elites. I would say odd, interesting people. Okay. Well, I mean, I think you look at the audience for existing punditry, and it's rabbits. Hmm. I mean, people watch the shit all day, every day. Everyone has MSNBC on all day. All they're watching is people giving opinions, and people also love competition. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I can't imagine just in theory that people wouldn't like that punditry more if there were a competitive element layered onto it's it. It's entertaining. Which is why, yeah, I mean, it's more entertaining, right? It, like, it makes it more dramatic. Yeah. One, uh, one, one yeah. of the tricky things, um, you know, this feels right to me as well. But one of the tricky things is uh, with something like robotics, it's policy-wise and politically neutral or positive. The problem, so I, I think where the questions come from and what they are, especially in the early going, well, that was one reason why for, 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 for in, in institutionalizing a, a setup in which each side would dominate questions, mm -hmm. and so there would be a, a, there would be some neutral ground. We, we, you, you don't want the tournament to be perceived as somehow partisan. It does have to have that. That new, new, there has to be the appearance and the reality. I would say as close to reality as you can get of a level playing field. Mm -hmm. uh, but I just had, I have to say what, 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 what Dean has just said just it captures almost perfectly what my hope is, and. Um, I would. I, I see no better note on which to close. Okay, Phil. <laughs> Thank you.